Alright guys, um, how are we all going? I hope we're all doing well. Me and Dale have been having a bit of a chat and uh, yeah, setting a few things up. So welcome to the guys that are joining us tonight for a bit of a chat. Dale's volunteered some of his time to uh, go through a bit of broom fishing, how he approaches the system, how he uh, structures his pre-fish and we'll have a chat about where he's come from with his fishing and um, yeah, where he's heading and obviously... We'll talk about Nelson in general due to that being our round next week. Um, but yeah, so obviously Dale's Dale's with us tonight to um, go through some stuff. We've had a bit of a chat behind the scenes. We'll probably end up going over a few things to double up a little bit. But yeah, so I thought we're live. Sorry, guys. We, we thought yeah, Dale thought we we're live and we we're chatting. So um, so yeah, obviously maybe we'll start there, Dale. We'll sort of start again um, if you can. Maybe how you got into kayak fishing. We'll start from there and how it developed for you. Yeah, quick recap. Um, obviously, like we spoke about before, yeah, you know, went away on a family holiday. You know, I'd been away from fishing for probably 20 years and, um, you know, managed to catch a decent, uh, you know, blue marlin over in Fiji, 215 kilo blue marlin, and it sort of reignited the, the passion for the fishing. And, you know, that developed. And through Brimmaster, like I was sort of saying, you know, we were... I sort of came across that because I wanted, I remember seeing AFC and, and seeing, um, you know, these guys fishing for broom and chasing them on lures out of boats. And I thought that's pretty cool. I've got to do something like that soon. And um, so I found uh, Brimmaster as a website and, you know, so much information, still so much information on the, on that forum that, you know, if you ever want to start anywhere, you know, go back through, through the forums in that. And there's so much information in there from, from, you know, so many, um, really quality quality anglers that um you know it sort of got me into it and then eventually i ended up buying a canoe i think in 20 2007 2008 and then in 2012 ended up you know buying one of the x first uh hobie ac slash hobie worlds um uh championship kayaks and um through you know Scotty Baker, who was the, the first world champion, actually. And um, Scotty had got me onto it through a mutual friend at work. And Nick Mace had already been doing the Hobie rounds, you know, quite a bit. And, you know, I think 2000, 2011, maybe it was. I can't remember. And then my first event was 2012. Uh, I'll tell you. Yeah, it was. So it must have been the 2011 AC, which was the Hobie Worlds. And then yeah, I picked up a kayak from from Lovig, Scott Lovig, um, at the time, and which was one of the XACs, and that was my sort of first first venture into into one of the actual pedal kayaks, and um, and then yeah, my first round was Marlow the next year, um, and Nick Nick and I stayed together at the Caravan Park there, and I met a guy called Clark Wilson. Clark's back in the in the series this year, which was good to see, and. It had a bit of a hiatus, but, um, you know, and it was, I think, biggest round to date was like 76 people in it. And um, sort of really funny, you know, I just went there and, you know, Paul, I'd fished with Paul Malov quite a bit through Brim Master and a lot of guys on Brim Master and everything like that. And, you know, Paul was, Paul had, as a, as a kid, he had no commitments or anything like that. He'd go east every time he could. So he and Mitch Chapman would fish. Bim, Marlow, tyres, all these sort of things. So I'd have lots of information. And Paul gave me some tips for fishing Marlow. And I sort of, you know, I'd never been there. And I was sort of like, oh, 
day one, I sort of got three fish and, you know, weighed them in and didn't really think much of it. And then day two, I sort of did what Paul told me to do. And I think I weighed in 2.89 kilos or something for, for day two and theoretically finished six on the day. And then I was on the way home and Justin Dingwell was his first event and he'd actually won the event, but they'd messed up the results. So it bumped everyone down one spot. So anyway, that was a, a good opening to, to kayak tournament fishing, you know, for me. And, um, yeah, I haven't looked back from the Hobie, so, you know, you get out my snapper or the, the broom, you know, as much as I can. It's good fun. Yeah. No, and it's good. And then, obviously, um, Paul is actually really good. I've reached out to Paul a few times. We've had a few chats backwards and forwards. And, um, yeah, he did say one of the advantages he had growing up was, like you say, he had the ability to just go where he wanted. And he said, you know, you never fished Hopkins when it's blowing 50 and it's rained for four days straight. Well, now I'll go and fish it. And he said he, that was one of the best things for him. That's how he learnt. So yeah, he had you know early early days. Like Paul was right into it from a young age. Like Alex and Alex's dad and and Paul used to go fishing a lot. But Paul had a oh, it was maybe a four meter tinny to start with. Yeah. And he and Mitch used to fish religiously together for a long time. And like they would leave work or whatever they were doing Friday night, they drive through the night, get there, and they would fish all day. <laughs> You know, yeah. and the amount of knowledge that they picked up really quickly. Um, you know, I mean, you can see it in his results now. He's done so well and he's so competitive and, you know, on, on any arena pretty much. And that that definitely, you know, puts him in good stead. <laughs> it's funny because we only had a conversation, I think it was at Nelson earlier this year. The first actual tournament I ever did was a Vic Brim round at Malacuta back in 2008, I think it was. And one of the other Brim Master guys, Anthony and myself, we fished out of Anthony's boat and then Paul and his dad fished out of their boat and we stayed together. And I'm there and I'm, you know, calling the family and putting the girls to bed and, you know, hey, I love you, blah, 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 and doing all that. And at Nelson this year, I'm, my kids are now 18 and 15. So it's a little bit different. I don't need to go through that process anywhere yeah. near as much. Paul was at that same stage. He goes, I get it now. Yeah. It's, it, we had a really long conversation about it. It was actually quite funny because he's going, I'm actually where you're at. We're at 10, 15 years ago. And you're past that now and able to put more time into it and things like that. So it's really interesting, the transition of how all that sort of evolves with, with your families and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny having a chat around there. Definitely. Definitely. The kids make it um, difficult. That's for sure. Like, yeah, mine's, mine's 18 now. So I've gone the other way as well, where it's, you don't have to stress about that anymore. I don't have to make the phone calls or have the chat for 20 minutes and check in and see how the day was. And yeah. Yeah, so I can understand that side of it. And, yeah, definitely makes a big difference. So I think so. I mean, you, you get to sort of concentrate a little bit more on what you're doing rather than what's happening at home and that everything's all right and worrying about that sort of thing. And But that, I think, is just part and parcel with it. So Yeah, no, definitely. So um, you've had a really good year this year at the tournaments. I think we were talking a bit before the AC that you've just come back from. And, um, yeah, I, I felt you might have been in with a win there with the uh, year you've been having in the kayak rounds. So... Yeah, I've, it's funny. I've got a love-hate relationship with Cuda, you know. Um, like I said just before, you know, Cuda was my first ever place I did a tournament at um, in the Vic Brims and, and we sucked 
big time in that. Yeah. But since then, I think the next year or a couple of years later was the first time I when I had the Hobie. And we did two events there that year. The one was a combined Southern Brim Series round um, with the Hobies. And then another was a combined Vic Brim. So you had the Vic Brim boats and, and the kayaks on the water. And um, both times I finished fourth. So that was sort of my opening to kayak fishing in Cooter. And I was like, oh, this is not too bad, you know. I think um, one of the events, was the second event, which was a Vic Brim, I think we, I donated on day one and I was sitting 24th out of 45, you know, like half the field donated. It was, uh, it was pretty tough fishing. And then the next day I went and smashed a three kilo bag and finished fourth. I was really stoked with that. I was only a kilo off the lead too. So yeah, right. again, it, it's one of those things you, it just shows you really need to get your bag limits both days. And that's something that I've built up to over, over this sort of time. And so Ever since then, I've had pretty reasonable results, like top 10s and things like that, except for, I think it was 2018, they had an event there in November, and I sucked. I went chasing other people's fish with tips that I'd been given and all this sort of thing, and and it was just horrible. It's just one of those events. I came away from that really sort of deflated, and, you know, it's such... The the one thing I'd say about the guys that are consistently at the top of the table is that it, it's such a mental game. You know, we can all fish to a certain level. Um, yeah, there's some talents there that are better than a lot of us, but it comes down to decision-making and, and their choices at the time. And um, that's something that they do really, really well. And, and I just had a horrible event. And that was in November, and that was playing on my mind coming into this event. <laughs> and because the next year I came out, and after day one I was leading with nearly three kilos in a March event at Cooter. Yeah, and then I ended up finishing third, unfortunately, by about fifty grams um, to Simon Morley and Tony Petty. So you know, two guys that aren't aren't too shabby. Yeah. Um, and I'd worked out a pattern. I did my own thing. I found my own fish on pre-fish. I did everything the way I wanted to do it. I threw two new lures that I've never thrown, and and everything just worked. So it was one of those things. It was really such a satisfying third place, regardless because of the way I went about it. So leading up to the AC, I was sort of like, yeah, it's, um, the November was playing on my mind, but I still went and did, and I found the right quality of fish, but I just couldn't find the consistency of getting, you know, and, and it just shows you need a full bag. If I had, if I had a full bag each day, like day one, I had two kilos for two fish, you know, all I needed was another fish, even 500 gram, and I would have been, you know, third or fourth or fifth or something like that, you know. Yeah. And then you get another two kilo bag the next day and you're still up there. And then I got a two kilo bag on the third day, even the second day, I think I only caught one fish and it was like 820 grams. So I was on the right fish. I just couldn't get the, the right the ones. Numbers. That's something that you're always learning. You know, you're learning, okay, what have, what could have I done differently? And hindsight, looking back at it, yeah, you, you go, okay, I could have done this, this and this. And yeah. Like I said before, it comes down to making the right decision at the right time. So, yeah, no, look, I think, and you know, it, I've noticed fishing the Hobies and fishing Brim Masters and some of the weigh ins that, yeah, you do have to consistently get your bag and you have to get over that two kilo mark to really be up there yeah. and you've got to stay. But, you know, I've always been big on the I'm not too shy to arcs 
Um, I won't ever ask a leader what they're what they're using, but you know, me and you talked at Brim Masters this year because you came up and had a chat, and then you went behind me, and all of a sudden, bang, you were as you were pedaling off, you caught a fish, and I'd sat on that spot for a good hour and a half, and you know, I could see stuff on the active, but I hadn't um, hadn't netted a fish, and I I came up to you the second day just out of curiosity to see, you know, what were you chucking, you know, and you you were straight up on us, you said, oh, I don't mind, I've been there, that's fine, I'll I'll tell you, and this is what it was. So. I think I think don't be shy even asking a leader. You know, like there's nothing wrong with asking the question. If they want to share with you, they'll share with you. There, there's, you know, I understand there's a little bit of gamesmanship and things like that. I try and be, you know, I'd rather tell you where I'm fishing, what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. No problem. Yeah. As long as there's enough respect that the next day if I'm there, people don't cut in or, or things like mm. that. Yeah. And I try and give other people the same courtesy. Um, and I think that's probably the better way to do it because if you're sharing that information, then you are able to, again, help people evolve and get better. But yeah. not only that, because you might be the one asking the question, like I might be the one asking the question of someone else and saying, well, what were you doing? You know, yeah. like I'll, I'll, at some point I'll speak to Stephen Pryke about the AC. I know where Steve fished and I wasn't too far from him and things like that. But I'd be curious to see what he did different to what, say, I did to get the better bites. So that's something that I need to learn or evolve. And, you know, Steve's, Steve's even though he's quite young, he's, he's a pretty accomplished fisherman, you know, in where he's fished and the amount of time that he spends on the water. And, and that's all important, I think, um, and fine-tuning. And like we said before, you know, making sure that you go out on those shitty days because they're the days that you might learn more about what, happens and how you're able to do it so i think i think the sharing in the sport is a good thing you know no definitely as as, as long as it's reciprocated the right way yeah yeah as long as there's i suppose the equity and equity in it that you don't go and jump in someone's spot and fish exactly where they were fishing or yeah yeah i understand what you mean there with that so yeah no but But look i've always also said that you know i would if someone's fishing an area i'll let them fish it Yep. But I'll go and fish it after them because I'll fish it differently to the way they yeah. fished it. And that technique might change the result of what you get. Yeah. If you're confident in your technique and how you do it, you might be confident that someone can walk, go through there and fish an area. Depending, you know, flat's a little bit different because you might spook the fish off flat and things like that. But generally with structure, fish will hold around structure. So you can you can can fish it differently. Yeah. No, easy. Um, so what we might do, we might move into how you look at a system. Um, so like when you went into Brim Masters at Nelson, how you set your pre-fish up, how you viewed it, what gear you sort of thought about or how you went to approach that system um, and structured your pre-fish day. Yep. So Nelson's uh, one of those places. I think I've been there maybe two or three times previously. One time was in a boat. Uh, one time was in a yak, and then I did an event there in a yak as well. And um, uh, Darren and I did a Darren Weeder and I did a pre-fish, and we fished rock walls and everything pretty much from uh, just past the sh- the first lot of shacks all the way up to sort of Donovan's and back. Um, and you know, Daz and I probably fish a little bit similarly, where we like fishing structure and things like that. I'm not really that much of a deep sort of fisherman. I prefer anything where there's you know 
pontoons or jetties or even rock walls that, you know, like especially with Nelson, the undercuts of those those banks are just amazing, you know, and when it's on, it's on. So um, I, I looked at that event coming up to it and I'm like, okay, we found out that we were time limited in regards to the prefish, so that then ended up changing the process a little bit. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I love my photography and everything like that, but, you know, I bought myself a drone and... So on the day before pre-fish, I got down the front and I just threw the drone up for 20 minutes just to sort of scout around to get an understanding. Is the front open? Is there flow of water? You know, can you see anything on the flats and things like that? Um, you know, it's sort of just to get an indication of, of how it looks more than anything so that I don't have to then spend the time going down there. And, you know, because by the time you get down the front and then try and go up, it, it's going to going to eat into your into your fishing time or your research time as such so knowing a system to start with is is a positive you know you know if you don't know it if you're new to it obviously google maps is the best thing that you can use there's so much and so much detail generally with most locations now that you can sort of suss out you know where you want to go reading previous event reports um and getting an understanding where the winners fished and you know, even, even like a big bag that comes out of the event, you might go, okay, well, where did that big bag come from? Who who fished that? They might not have necessarily won, but um, they might have, you know, been in a particular spot and gone, okay, well, there's big fish that live there. And you go, okay, well, maybe I'll go and target that area to, to start with and, and see. And so then we we looked at that. I wanted to fish a little bit of an area from from the bottom up and not hit it too hard, but just try a couple of things, see which lures are working. and then we got off the water at, oh, I think it was about 10 and basically drove up to Donovan's and then fished down for about three hours and then off the water again. So a little bit of travel time in that and unpack and pack time, but it was actually good to do because you sort of got a, an idea of the top end of the system and the bottom end of the system and see what it was doing. And to then sort of work out a bit of a, bit of a plan of how you're going and then attack, you know, day one and things like that. So yeah, I think, I think you uh, you made the smart option there, not like me and Corey who decided to paddle all the way up from the main ramp to Donovan's. So, yeah. Yeah. So the problem the problem with that is is I looked at that and I go, okay, it's going to take us this long to get there, and then you know the word on the street was that you had to be off the water by two. So I didn't want to you know go and cut the rules or anything like that. I sort of thought, okay, well you know it is what it is. I didn't want to go up there and originally that's what I would have done if I could have just spent the day on the water. Yeah. Um, and then cruise back down with the tide or whatever it was, I think, at the time. So, um, so yeah, that's why I just wanted to maximise the time that I was able to sort of scope places out. And I had a really tough pre-fish. I think I caught one brim. Yeah, okay. Um, and that was sort of probably about three k's back down. And, and the funny thing is, is staying in the houses that we've stayed in with the calibre of guys that we're with, like we've got a really good crew that tend to go away, you know, Ben Shuey, Dylan Pace, Malov, um, Corey, um, Johnny Rayo, all these guys can fish really, really well. And, you know, you come back and you hear stories about pre-fish and, yeah, there was this and this. And, like, Dill had a day out, you know. He, he didn't go and absolutely brain fish. But he goes, yeah, they were on early. And that's one thing that we worked out is we've gone, okay, with a low light, they were up high. But as soon as we got there, like by 11 o'clock, they were shut down. Yeah. So I was sort of, okay, well, what's the process here? How am I going to look at this? You know, 
the flats down the front looked really, really good. And then you go through a process of where's the tight at? Where do you want to get to and where do you want to end up? And you also want to go, do I make a call of traveling 15 kilometers or 10 kilometers and pedaling for an hour and a half and not fishing to get there to yeah. go, I've got three hours of really good fishing to film a well and then spend an hour and a half travel back. So you knock three hours out of your day of fishing. Or do you go, okay, I want to spend an hour and a half traveling and fishing, but that will only get me to this point. Yeah. And then I need to turn around. I need to either hike it back to this point and then fish and then fish back. And that's the way I looked at probably day one of Nelson. And I wanted to sort of hit the bridge, hit a couple of shacks on the rock walls for that first section up till about the ski zone and then go pretty much up to the top of the ski zone and fish one of the edges up there and then come back all the way down the front and fish as the tide was coming back in, I think. It was on a high tide. So I wanted the water over those flats down the front. Yeah. So that's the way I looked at it. And, you know, I think I got one small fish off the bridge and sort of there was a few guys fishing shacks. So I just bypassed them and I fished an edge on the other side. And I got my first fish, I think, you know, 25 minutes in and then a second one, you know, 10 minutes after that. So I was, you know, I was pretty happy that I had, you know, a couple in the well. Yeah. And then um, then I slowly made my way up fishing some of there's a there's a favorite section of rock wall from that little um i think it's the monument or the island that's in the middle there on that corner at the end of the straight with the bridge in it those rock walls up to the sort of ski zone that next section have always been really good you know there's some generally some good fish on them and they're barren like so i said like oh, what am i doing you know so then i got halfway up the ski zone and i sort of started to chuck right into the edges just you know, you'll you paddle along and then, you know, obviously yeah, whether you want to break or something like that, you want to sort of then just maybe do a couple of scouting casts and just see. And I ended up actually casting pretty much up onto the bank and I noticed all of a sudden the fish were right up in there. So anytime I saw a snag that was right on the bank, I threw up in it and, you know, I got a couple of really good fish out of that. And, um, and that upgraded two of the smaller fish I had in my bag. And then I think I went from, I, I didn't get any more bites up past there. So I said, okay, well, I want to still go down the front and just suss out because that might, I might be able to upgrade the whole bag, yeah. you know, in three or four casts down there. So went all the way down the front and like pretty much right up to the mouth, looked amazing and the flats were, were really good. And, and, um, and then just drifting back over, there's a real sort of um, rocky groin in the middle and yeah, I sort of cast up on that. And I thought I had a trevally or something because this, this just thing felt weird. And it was, I mean, it was only a, a six or 700 gram fish, but it was an upgrade of my last fish. I think I kicked out about a 400. So that had me up in about, I don't know, third or fourth or fifth or something like yeah. that. I can't remember. Where and I, I, I remember, I think you said it was about 700 grams because that was when you caught that one. That was behind me, yeah. um, which was kind of funny because I actually watched the three fish swim straight past on the active target. And I thought, ooh. That's right. They're decent sized fish. And then I heard your real scream and I've turned around and went, You're joking. <laughs> so <laughs> that was on this guy. A little Yeah. Oh, where are we? There you go. Yeah. Rice. That's an army. Rice fish, isn't it? Yeah, rice yeah. fish. Absolutely. Yeah. So um yeah, that was you know, it was sort of only in four hundred ml of water, but it dropped off to like a meter and a half. So Yeah. 
yeah, I'd sort of been fishing around there for a good hour, hour and a half before you got there. And I'd fished that little cove um, and the flat there. And then I'd sort of fished across where you'd come from and then gone back to that point. And I could see, I didn't know what fish were there, but I could see yeah. fish on the active. So I went, you know what, I'm just going to spend an hour. I'm just going to yeah. pepper this spot and see if I can pull anything. Yeah. Um, because obviously I donut it, so um, <laughs> dire straits for me on that day. So, yeah, yeah, because it's it's funny when it's like that. Like I, I think that was the second day at Cuda for me this year in the AC, and I could see these fish, the yep. ones that I wanted to catch, and I caught one, and then I was like, right, they've switched on because something had changed, the tide point had changed or whatever, and their attitude had changed, and I'm like, okay, I should be able to get three real quick. Couldn't get another bite. Yeah, and I peppered the place for as much as I could. Oh, look, it, it made me question: like, is it something I'm doing? Am I not doing something right? Have I just got? Have you got? And I thought maybe you've got some lure that hasn't been released yet. Obviously, being part of Daiwa, and I thought, is it something random like that, or what is it like? And, and you're like, oh no, it's just a jerk bait. I'm like, no, oh, okay, righty ho. And I'd thrown a jerk bait, and yeah, I hadn't had a touch. So, but a lot of people had that that happen and especially there at nelson and we're talking before the chat a little bit about the tides and the water running in and um a few of the guys that did get that one fish got it as that water started pushing in from the mouth it turned it on up there and that was right at the end of the fishing time so yeah that was a hard bit i know brendan went right up the front and he sort of i think he got one as as they came in and it was funny on day two i was back down there and i could actually see schools moving through but again they wouldn't eat until the point whether they were just in that transition mode in their head and the tide still wasn't right for them to eat. Yeah. So um, that's the one thing that I need to work on and, and find, you know, I reckon I could have been lucky with that bite. And it, it, I think it comes down to a bit of confidence too. Like when you don't have a bag, I, I really do think you fish differently as to when you do have a bag. And because yeah. I have a bag, you're probably way more relaxed about what you're doing. And I was just, throwing a jerk bait and I was actually really enjoying I had a, had a new rod that I'd just sort of got before the event and it's perfect for jerk bait fishing <laughs> and I was like oh, how good's this thing you know and then the next thing it loaded up and you know it's just one of those things I think that happens sometimes that's I think there is a bit of luck factor sometimes in it yeah. um, but I don't think it's all the time I think you know the same guys do tend to, to end up up the top and it's for a reason of making right decisions. And I think I made the right decision at the right time and was in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. And that sort of can help. Yeah. And being more relaxed about when you, you definitely sort of fish differently when you've got, you know, that full limit of, of fish in your tank already. So, yeah. And look, I, I generally say to the guys at our events, if you come up to me and you haven't caught a fish, I will tell you what I'm throwing because obviously at our events, we want the guys to catch fish too. So, um you know especially even like this one being a two-day event if someone isn't catching fish we'd rather them come up to us on the saturday night and go look i haven't caught a fish all weekend we're going out tomorrow what am i doing Um, and that's where you dale Corey, macy have all been great for some of us guys that are a bit unsure because we've been coming up to you guys at every event and asking the questions like you know any tips any ideas what what can we chuck what what would you suggest where would you suggest to try Yep. So, yeah, it goes back to our previous part where you sort of said, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, go and, go and have a chat. you you got to learn something. Yeah, well, so. ask, the question, ask the question in the right way, I think, yeah. and you'll go a long way to, you know, um, getting a, a, a response that's helpful for you and, and everything like that. And, 
you know, I think all the guys that one, one thing I really enjoy about the kayak fishing is that there's, it's not as secretive as, again, I haven't done boats for a long time. So, you know, I can't actually say what it's a hundred percent like, but I just know, you know, everyone's pretty much willing to share most information. You know, sometimes there's things that won't get said and that's cool. Like you, you just gotta, you gotta accept that. You still gotta find your own way a little bit. Um, but getting an idea, you know, don't, one thing I would I'd take it with a grain of salt because sometimes people will give you information that's probably not quite right. <laughs> and, you know, you've got to be smart enough about it to, to, to do what you think you want to do and what suits your strengths as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think most guys are going to give you help in the right direction anyway. So. Yeah. Um, so obviously you pre-fish, you only got the one, so it's probably not really going to work for this, but maybe use a different system, but base it around Nelson. How would you go then from your pre-fish to structure your plan for the comp day? Well, that having one on my pre-fish actually structured my comp day. Yeah. So it, it, it actually goes hand in hand, you know, like the, I, I look at the previous time at Cuda, like I was saying in 2019, I actually had a really, really good pre-fish and I found fish in different areas but it meant that I didn't have to travel as far that I needed, that I think I needed to travel. Yeah. So I went to an area, I ended up being by myself back, back then. And that was, that was good for me. And I probably caught 50 fish over the weekend. It was great. With Nelson having only that one up high, I was sort of like, I don't think I need to come up this far. So I need to concentrate on that structure and I need to work that a little bit slower and a little bit more methodical and, you know, I, I love throwing cranker crabs and like, especially on the edges. I actually really enjoy throwing crabs on edges and walking them along. So not only, you know, on sinking structure and things like that, but where it's in, you know, two, three foot of water, you're actually casting right up where the fish are feeding and you're actually just walking it back. So it's a sort of slow, monotonous sort of working, but the, the hookups are insane. So I sort of thought about that. I'll, I'll hit the structure. I'll try and maximize my time in that lower section of the system before I come back down. Cause I want to get back down to the front at 12 o'clock or 1230 to make sure that I've got an hour and a half down there before I need to paddle back. Cause it'll take me, if I give myself half an hour from the front to back to the start, I've got enough time. Yeah. So I looked at it that way and I've gone, okay. And then things fall into place, you know, having your bag sort of early enough. Again, like I said, it gives you confidence that you're not chopping and changing around. Prime example, day two at Cuda, I didn't have a fish until 12.20. But 11 o'clock, I'm crapping my dax going, what the hell am I going to do? It's not working what I'm doing. So I'm like, I need to change it up. So I went in somewhere different. And then I came across some fish and that's where I fished on day three and I got a three fish bag. So... There's things like that that you can do. And like I said earlier, it's the guys that are consistently at the top of the table and there's a handful of them that are consistently at the top of the table and for a good reason is they make the right decisions at the right time. Yeah. They understand that what they're doing isn't working and it could be whether they understand tides and how the fish react to those tides. That's one thing I probably need to put a little bit of time and effort into of understanding that a little bit better. Um, or they know that at a particular time of day or if it's cloudy or if it's sunny or if it's windy, that the fish will move up onto this area. So, and again, that comes with experience of doing the hours and the places. 
you know, knowing what the structure's like and keeping that sort of in. And that's why I say you never, you never don't learn because, you know, you go to a system and the systems change, but you understand roughly what the parameters are of the structure around you and things like that. And you can sort of go, oh, okay, well, the tide's at this level. It's going to be covering that flat over there. I should go there and have a look. So small things like that of making right decisions at right times, I think is, is key. Yeah. No, good. Um, so I suppose once you've done your pre-fish and you've moved into your structure, do you go through your lures and when you have a successful pre-fish and maybe shrink the lures you're going to throw down or do you just have a set sort of set of lures that you're happy to throw and you'll stick to those favourites? Um, I'm always like, you know, like you sort of mentioned before, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be associated with dials. So I've got lots of different lures and different colours. I have my favourites in the range. And at particular systems, I will pretty much only throw those. Um, but I will also try things that are new. You know, like a BEM this year, I threw Weedy Suji for the first time. Never thrown it before. Got two of my big fish on it on one of the days. And, and it, you know, it's one of those things. I'm like, okay, well, that's a new favourite. So, yeah. you know, there's certain colours that I will look at and I'll go certain areas work with those. Um but there are some staples that you just sort of go, yeah, you know. I think that's one thing we can overcomplicate is yeah. that the best lure that you've got is A, the lure that's in the water and the lure that you're confident with, I think, are the two biggest things. Um, you know, I'm big on throwing um, light olive crabs. So I just find regardless of whether it's – especially for black brim. For yellowfin, I'll probably, like up in Sydney and things like that, I'll throw heavies because I want them deeper down in the structure. But even when the tide's pushing and things like that, I'll use that and cast it in the right area to get it sucked under the pylons and, and things like that. So um, it's it's just one of those things that you have a lot of confidence with. You know, I've never been a, a huge plastics fisherman, but again, because of the bait, bait chunky range and things like that, Again, I'm, I'm adding to my skill level and things like that of adding those lures to the range and putting the crabs away and not having a box of crabs in the thing when I go for a fish and actually going, okay, well, I need to work this out. I need to, okay, I need to try and learn something new of how do I utilise this to catch those fish. Yeah. So those sort of things. And then, you know, I'd try not to do that on comp day because you want to do something that you're confident with more so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, as we said earlier, I'm a bugger for it. I um, I tend to take way too much out with me. I've got to try and work out a way to shrink it down. But I'm the sort of person where I go, well, if I don't have it and I need it, I'm going to regret leaving it in the car. So, oh, I'm like you. And, and you sort of go, oh, well, I've never used that color. So it might actually work because they're not taking this or whatever. But I still think if you have end up from a tournament perspective or you have a handful that you're very confident with, the more confident you are with the lure, the more you're going to get a bite. So that's yeah. the way I look at it now. I've, I've narrowed a lot of them down. Yeah, and look, I went when we were at BEM last year, I tried some different things because I donated on day one at our Yakunas event at BEM. And I just went, you know what? I, I've got nothing to lose. So day two, I went out and I put random, completely different yep. stuff on. And I actually took one of the little Shazanamis in the pink out with me, um, the pink prawn or whatever they call that one. Yeah. Um, and I used that at BEM this year and it was deadly. Um, and again, they, now you've got a new favourite for Ben. Like, oh. they're the perfect situations. Or when you're doing a social, throw things that you wouldn't normally throw to see whether they work yeah. in an area. That that lure's been that crunch now. You can actually see where the teeth have grind into the actual plastic. So, yeah. 
Yeah. It's sitting in a spare box now. I've got a new one there for it to replace it. So. Yeah, well, I had a I had a double clutch 70, uh, 60, you know, crunched by a fish at BEM this year. So, yeah. you know, but it just it hit it the right way and it broke it, you know. That's yeah, what yeah. happened. Okay, so um, maybe we'll have a quick chat about this one. You've sort of covered it with the tides and stuff, but with the weather and things like that, do you find at an event that that can change the way that you might fish? Um say like it's a nice sunny day bit of wind but then the next day you've got a storm come through or a cloudy rainy day do you find that changes the way you fish at all or you just sort of still go the same it should yeah and that's what i didn't adapt to yeah so uh yeah i I think it plays more of a role than i've given it credit for in the past um and I, i think i've always looked at to try and understand where the wind's going because i'll always try and fish the windiest bank if I'm fishing banks and things like that, because obviously the bait's getting pushed up and that sort of thing. So that's generally where you'll find most of the fish. Yeah. Um, however, you know, the sunny days and the cloudy days and no wind and wind are things that I'm starting to think about more. And I think that's just as you evolve, you, you're trying to think about so much. Otherwise, you've now got to try and add that to the process and then that i think combines also with tides you know yeah. if you if you've got a southwester on a system and the mouth's open but it's a run out tide it might actually keep all that water up in the system or it's a run in tide it might push more water in the system so you get better coverage of water in the system to go and fish flats and things like that so those sort of things you start to think about a little bit more and and they're discussions that we have in the houses and things like that that's where it's good when you go away with a group of people is that you you're always bouncing ideas off each other as to, you know, how did your pre-fish go? What did you do? You know, without trying to give away too much because we're still competitive within a house, each other. Um, but at the same time, you're good mates and you generally want to share a little bit. You want all of everyone that's in the house to be successful at, at the event as well. So, um, yeah, and, and getting an understanding. You know, we talked a lot about the wind and everything away recently. So because there was issues with wind and that sort of thing. So Yeah, yeah, easy. Um, so what we might do, we'll move more into some lures that you would suggest for guys to maybe chuck at Nelson and how to target them. Um, yep. And maybe also, if we can with that, we might go a little bit more, if there's something that you think for someone who's maybe not a broom fisherman that's just starting out, that you can sort of suggest for some guys. Yep. Um, and we'll go from there. But yeah, if you can go through a couple of favourites maybe and um, the technique you use to fish those lures. So obviously one of the first things I would throw at Nelson or the first thing that I'd have tied on would be the um, cranker crab olive light um, and fishing any of the structure. Um, I think at Nelson this year, I actually fished on five pounds straight through um on a regular taper rod which i found allowed me to lock up the drag a little bit more and use my drive and i think that's one of the differences of why maybe i landed a few more fish than paul did paul certainly had i think the caliber of fish but Paul fish is very heavy. He fishes like 12 and 14 pound liters and mussels fish and they don't like it as much. Yeah. So I tend to lead them out a little bit more. So as soon as I hook a fish, I, I, I'll try and keep their head um, on, on tension and I'll yeah. grab reverse and back out as quickly as I can and just lead them out. And then once they're out, then I'll fight them and, and everything. 
having five pounds straight through it's strong enough that you're not going to bust it. And I've even in the Maribyrnong, I've now tried three pounds straight through, and I've been using that to really good effect on the on the muscle lures and things like that lately, and been surprised at the quality of fish you can get away from structure. But yeah, five pound, if they're going to eat it, they're going to eat it. So you may as well have a little bit more strength to your arsenal. But having that slightly slower tapered rod allowed them to lunge, and that means that you don't necessarily have to let them take drag yeah. because the lunges are absorbing them, pulling the hooks. Um, and the stretch in the, in the fluorocarbon obviously also gives a little bit as well. So it's not like with a braid leader combination where they pull hard and it can pop. Yeah. Um, especially if you're using a faster taper rod, then it's quite stiff and everything like that. Um, so yeah, so that'd be the first thing I'd have tied on. I'd also probably tie on maybe a muscle or a, a you know, like a black baby vibe or something like that. Any of the sinking lures, like yeah, that's you know, black baby vibe. Um, stick minnow for me, I love stick minnows. They're great for casting into pylons and things like that. And they sort of have a a real when they sink they do this real shimmy um, and that's, you know, maybe a bit of muscle or something falling off a pile on and, and shimmying through the water column. That can be quite effective. Um, I probably, maybe I'd give surface a go. I don't, not this time of year, but all I fished all weekend at Cooter was pretty much surface. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing I said to Ben on day one was, I hate fishing vents because I can't fish them. And then I did a ride on them. So, um, but also like a, a small diving hard body, whether it's like that's a Sazanami, but something a bit deeper, you know, the, down the rock walls, even the, because the, there's four or five metres of water in some spots. So you can fish as deep as you want, you know. Um, and then for down the front, just like a, a shallow jerk bait. Um, you know, that's the Saznami. But any shallow jerkbait would work on a braid leader combo so you can get the twitch on it. Yeah. No, perfect. So so, I'd probably, probably take four or five rods at least. Yeah. If I was in the PA, I'd probably take six rods and I'd have it set up. And then I'd probably have a, a like a, a, a grub or a minnow style plastic on as well. Yeah. Okay. That was the next one I was about to ask was like, how many rods would you sort of take out with you and whether you'd sort of shrink that down after a pre-fish, whether you'd sort of work out what's working and go from there. Yeah, pre-fish, I try and take six or seven, yeah. um, depending on what I think I want to throw. Um, then, obviously, for comp day one, I'll potentially fine-tune that and might have a double-up of something. Yeah. Uh, if I know I'm going to predominantly, say, throw a crab with a, on, on that, I might have two of those setups so that if I do get busted off, I've got another one to throw straight in. Yeah. Um, but I also like to try and have i mean i i use clips so to swap a hard body out for a different bait is actually quite easy yeah. so that that sort of doesn't worry me too much um but yeah you know i want to have a rod with a, a deep diving hard body a shallow hard body a plastic um whether it's a grub or a minnow or anything um if there's structure there i'll have a mass a crab and maybe you know a stick minnow or something like that yeah so with the crab, um, I know that there's different people working different ways. Do you sort of walk them across the bottom or do you do the old hop and um, drop sort of way? Um, if 
couple of different ways. So if I'm fishing structure, I will pretty much look at what part of the structure I'm fishing and what tide. Um, so say you've got an outgoing tide and you're coming up to a bit of structure that's either a pontoon or a bridge pylon that's quite long. Yeah. I'll cast in at the back end of it to start with in the eddy. And the biggest key for me to getting bites, I find, is leaving some slack line on the water and then letting that bait sink naturally. Um, I see a lot of guys fishing real tight lines and the problem is as soon as it lands, it's coming away from the structure. You want it to actually get sucked into the structure and in the turbulent water. Yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, they'll be just mooching there and then the next thing they'll see something flash past and they'll go, oh, what's that? And then they'll just go and eat it straight away. Whereas if it's getting pulled away, they won't tend to, it doesn't fall as naturally. Yeah. And then I would hit the back foot from the back corner and then maybe a cast in the middle or at the front. And then with the leading edge, I'd actually go up past the system and um, or past the structure and cast about a foot or two in front of it, depending on how deep the structure is, so that the lure then actually gets sucked under the front of that structure. Yeah. Because you might find there's a lot of fish just sitting under the leading edge of that structure, um, especially pontoons if you've got those. Um, so, and then, you know, as soon as you feel a bite, you want to just back away. Um, yeah. you, you know, if you've got a 180 drive or something like that, you've got the luxury of that, then just back away from the structure under tension and you should should be able to get them out. Um, so that's the way I'd probably look at that. If if it's, say, the shacks at Nelson, Nelson I'd, I'd go to the pylons, each of the pylons, and, and the key for me is trying to hit the water and the pylon at the same time at the pylon. Yeah. If you're hitting a, a 10 inches out or 5 inches out or a foot out, you're not going to get a bite. Very rarely. It has to hit that structure without hitting it too hard. So... Casting accuracy is really important. But then in between the shacks, casting up to the bank. Now, this is where I won't really hop it. I'll try and let it sit on the bottom and I'll actually just slow wind and you'll feel it walking along the bottom. Yeah. So that's probably the key thing because a crab doesn't hop. Yeah. They fall off structure, but they don't hop, but they do walk along the bottom and that's where you'll get like a pretty insane take on them. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting because different people, like I say, with the cranker crab, they sort of, there's no set way out of people fish it. Everyone sort of fishes it slightly different. And yeah, I I, I didn't fish them for a long time, um, mainly due to the price of them. <laughs> and I lost a couple when I first started um, on bridges and stuff. But now, like in, in Maribyrnong now, I've got two or three tied on every trip. Um, you know, in our winter brim series that we did that you came along to, I yeah. dropped, I pulled the hooks on, on two fish, um, because I'd found a snag in the middle of the river and I could see them on the active sitting under the snag. So I was just letting that drop. And the minute it went past that snag, they smacked it straight away. Yeah. So, but I know at BEM, I used to use it on some of the flats and that down near the mouth. And I used to walk it across the sand on the flats. Um, and that also worked pretty good up there as well. So, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. where it's funny where if, if I was walking it across a flat, I'd actually use a heavy. Yeah, okay. because it casts further, yeah, and it stays on the bottom easier. Yeah, when you're walking it back, or use the larger ones, um, like the the sixty five Yeah, um, they're a bit bigger, so yeah. they work. They work really well. Um, 
even fishing those in structure on the Maribyrnong, you know, I found with a bait cast outfit, they're heavier so you can cast it easier and things like that. That's pretty cool. So, um, yeah, I, I walk them rather than hop them. Yeah, easy. Um, for someone who maybe doesn't broomfish at all, what three lures would you sort of say would be something that they could go and buy to start off with to learn? Um, yep. And just something simple, I suppose, that makes it easier for them to use. Yeah. You could use a cranker crab or say a if you don't want to do that and want to keep it a bit cheaper just throw like a risky critter or a creature bait of some kind um, on a jig head and then depending on what depth you're fishing obviously you can alternate you know whether you use a 130th 120th 116th depending on how deep you want to do it but they will have similar sort of effect um so obviously that's a much cheaper option than throwing 23 bucks a pop or yeah. 24 bucks a pop at structure when you're learning um you will probably get more bites on a crab um but again it depends like yellowfin love plastics you know like you throw a bloodworm um risky critter at them and they'll go nuts so um yeah uh, again it's what you're confident with i think you know so three things i would say have a plastic on whether it's a grub you can't go past a, a two inch grub or two and a half inch grub on a one sixteenth say um that's going to be able to fish most water columns and everything for you if it's flying a bit faster go heavier it's not flying faster go a bit lighter if you're comfortable with that um and then a hard body of some kind so you can cast and retrieve cast and retrieve so you know um like a, a spike 44 or spike 53 in a standard depth would be something that you can cover in shallow water and deep water just by depending on where you put your rod tip yeah if you if you just want to cover off a couple of basics that you don't want to spend a lot of money in and just do some things some plastics and a couple of hard bodies will do, will do the trick yeah too easy so while we're sort of rounding up guys if you've got any questions for dale just chuck them in the comments and i can ask away for him um but again, thanks for doing this for us tonight, Dale. I really appreciate oh, it. No um, problem. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, I hope everyone, you know, is able to grab something out of it for the comp next week. And, you know, it's going to be interesting this time of year. I still think it'll be a bit of a, a structure or a deep bite. So maybe maybe put a vibe on, like a black vibe. Yeah. One thing I sort of probably learnt over the last 12 months is when the fish are deep, um, you know, even on a plastic, put it on a one sixth or a one eight and and the fact that when it hits is creating noise and they'll, it'll attract the fish yeah um you know i know a couple of guys got their bags recently cooter fishing in four meters of water and using a heavy jig head because it creates that and then they come over and see a tail hanging up out of the water you know out of out of the dust or whatever and they're just like suck it in so yeah. not not a bad option as well so easy you guys got any questions or no one seems to have put any questions up. The only question that was on there earlier, I think, was um, where's the best place to lose a GoPro? If anyone hasn't, go over and have a look at Dale's YouTube channel and have a like and a subscribe on that. And uh, you'll find a, a good episode where he pulls a, a GoPro out of the Maribyrnong. Well, that's where I actually dropped it the week before and um, I was fishing up against a pontoon and it was not clicked in properly. And as I pushed up against the pontoon, it popped it out and fell in the water. And I didn't feel like getting wet that day. So I remembered where it was. And then the tide was out the next week, so it was much shallower. And I was able to then scoop it up. So yeah. 
but it was really funny as it was falling you could see the fish coming to investigate what it was so yeah no i i had a good laugh i watched all your videos for a while and um yeah <laughs> I, I sort of followed through you and paul and that before i even bought a kayak because i didn't know whether to go spend the money on a kayak or to wait and go back to buying another boat and go back to boat yeah. fishing so um so but for around the city i don't think you can go wrong with a kayak like you can you can access anywhere you can launch anywhere you know that's that's one of the things i love about it you know yeah, it takes a bit longer to get to a few spots and if somewhere's not working but it, i think that also goes in hand with making you a better fisherman or yeah. fisherman person whatever you want to call it you know and that because you you can't then just leave that spot and motor off somewhere else <laughs> you need to try and work out how to catch it yeah and i think you end up becoming a better angler about how you go about your process and it, and it's funny like i i look at kayak fishing more of not a hindrance i look at it that i can fish areas that in a boat might be either harder to get into or i've got no access mm. um you know i know you've made up a little slide thing for i think in caroline springs and that when you slide off the jetties there to slide the kayak yeah. in there you know things like that like i've done that at some of the spots i go to because they're pretty rocky so i'm not scratching the bottom of the kayak but i wouldn't get a yeah. boat down there you know no, so, so the kayak has its advantages and its disadvantages so one of the questions we've got is what's your preferred leader weight um, I, funnily enough, I generally fish four pound or five pound everywhere. I, I rarely go bigger than that. I've never, I, I'll lose a couple of fish here and there, but I've generally found that I get more bites using the lighter leader. And it's, again, it's a discussion we have when we're away, you know, all the guys have different opinions on this. Um, since I've learned to tie an FG knot as well, it, it sort of, you know, you can run heavier stuff if you really need to. But I've just found, you know, even in structure, the way I fish structure, I've always generally been able to get fish out of it. Um, even fishing five pound. I've had, I remember a session in the Pado where I had a fish wrapped around three different pylons. Um, that video is to come, I swear. I've got the footage and... I've just been lazy and haven't edited it together, but literally had me wrapped around three pylons and got him out and he would have been 1.1, 1.2 kilos, you know, and yeah. five pound of rubs along, but I opened the bail arm, allowed it to move and eventually got it up and it was pretty shredded, but you're able to land it. So unless you're really trying to muscle them out, that's where I find they will just turn around and destroy you straight away. Yeah. Scotty Boyd's put a comment on there, of course. Um, still hasn't found his rods from Bem. So I'm guessing you might have rolled the yak over at Bem at some point. Uh, yeah. So yeah. when was that? That was... I think it would have been 2017 or something like that. I was going to say, um, we haven't seen Boyd at a comp for a little while, so it must have been a while ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scott who? Scotty, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, um, I, I hear Scotty dusted off the yak the other day and got out and uh, got into a few. So it was good. It's good to see we want him back. Um, yeah, I, again, it just shows. You know, I've been kayak fishing for probably six or seven years, and I consider myself pretty, pretty skilled in a yak. Like the amount of time I'd spent in one and everything like that. And um, it was at Bem. And there was a, a adjusted finish. So I finished at 2.30. The other guys were going in at 2. And I had one more fish to get. And um, and 
I passed Mitch King and Mitchie said, drift that way with a blade cast, you'll get a fish, guaranteed. And it's funny, after last year, I now get what he was saying. So I, I know how to do that now. But at the time, so I was drifting with the, the Southwester. And the thing is at BEM, every fourth wave is a big wave. And literally, I'd had about four or five casts and I was drifting towards the mouth. And um, yeah, I literally put a cast in. I must have been sitting on the right-hand side of the yak. So like sometimes you sit more on one side of your seat than on the other. And as I've cast, I've done that. And this wave has hit me at the same time. And literally like that, I was over. I didn't even know what happened. I'm like, what the hell? And um, yeah, I reached under. I had two rods sticking up out of the um, <laughs> out of the live well, and I actually was able to grab both of those and save those. Yeah. But I lost two others. So there's a a couple of uh, there's a TD black TD zero, a TD black, and a certate and an Excella at the bottom <laughs> of somewhere. So every year I seem to hear of someone flipping over in a few more rods or something going yeah, in someone it's, somewhere look it, it's not a nice feeling and and you know it's funny i've made lifelong friends from a couple of the guys that actually came and helped me that event um dave shanahan and and paul dunlop they you know dave's a, a big guy i'd never met really before i know he'd done the comps for a long time but um dave actually got back late just to make sure an angler got back safe so again i think it's that care for each other and everything like that and you know paul went off chasing my tackle boxes that were floating down the river and things like that and i had a hole full of water and it was interesting paddling back it was hard work so yeah um, i did have my live well secured <laughs> so i had two fish in there and i ended up weighing big brim for the uh event so takes a little bit of the hurt out of it yeah it did it did but it was still you know it was one of those things and and, and again you know sort of not the really the gear it was the fact that you know every event now those guys you know, i catch up with them and see how they're traveling and, and that sort of thing so yeah. it um it just shows that you know everyone's out there to sort of do the right thing and look after each other so so uh benny hotchkins has just asked uh what's your is straight through worth giving a go yeah i gave um Depends on what you're doing. So I gave straight through a go about five years ago and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. But then I tried some slightly heavier stuff and went to the five pound. And all of a sudden, and I was fishing crabs on five pound on edges. And there was so much sensitivity through it that I'm like, wow, this is incredible. So I did fish it for a while and then I stopped for a little bit. Um, and then when Morgo started fishing the musk, at the Australian Open this year on the three pounds straight through, I thought, ah, oh, I'll give this a go. Um, and I couldn't believe the results. Like it blew me away. Not only how much pressure you can put on them, even on three pound, I wouldn't fish a crab on three pound on, on the edges because there's too much stretch. And yeah. one of the reasons why I went away from it fishing three pound was that quite often even the claws will snag up a little bit and all you got to do is just shake the rod and with braid and leader it'll actually flip it over whereas with straight through all it does is absorb yeah whereas five pound being a bit stiffer it um it's enough to give it a, a shock off the rock and then it'll just flip over and then you can keep walking it but um yeah on on structure where you've got nothing around three pounds straight through with with not only the muss and you know, some of the heavy vibes I've, I've found incredible, like the bite rate and everything that you're getting is really, really good. So um, give it a go and see what you think 
for your area is how it would work. I know Benny fishes um, East Gippsland a fair bit, but if he like you know goes down the Nico or something and is fishing some of the bridges and that sort of thing, I think you'll be surprised. And that's where you're pretty much running a fairly locked up drag, and you're just utilising the stretch of the line yeah. with that reverse to get them out. Yeah. Um, I've got two more questions for you. So one, uh, when fish move into deeper water, are blades a good option? And do brim get attracted to the vibration or more spooked? Wrong person to ask. I hate yeah. vibe <laughs> with passion. Although I did come to like it at BEM this year. Yeah. Because I finally realised what it did. Um, you probably know this just as good. Ben Shuey's running Active Target, and he was telling me about the fish's reaction to the lures when they hit. Yep. And I was struggling for, as you guys may have seen, if anyone's watched the, the BEM video, I was struggling to get my third fish on, on day two. And um, Dave Ayton said, here, just chuck a vibe on, cast it out, and it's the shortest of lifts. And again, this was sort of rain... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Joel was telling me about what he was doing at, at Kudo and, and it sort of, you know, told me that this sort of technique is what is attracting the fish. And it's more the fact that the blade is hitting the bottom yeah, and it creates a puff of dust. That's what attracts the fish. And if you all of a sudden the dust clears and there's something sticking out, they'll go, oh, what's that? And I'll eat it. Yeah. I've, so I've found on the active that I can I can watch them follow it down and like you say once it hits that's when they'll sort of go hang on a minute you give it one quick lift and they'll just sit there and as soon as it hits like you say that dust bang they're on yeah yeah so it's not lifting it far it's literally it's like you want to lift it you know a couple of inches if that and then yeah. you get it to hit again so then it, they'll see that it's trying to get away and they'll think it's a prawn or something just skipping off the bottom. Um, even Steve Morgan, I, I remember reading up on the Gold Coast this year and I found some information and Steve had sent me through this um, Word document or that was handwritten that he'd written for the Worlds when it was there for the first time for the international anglers. And he was talking about the blades, how they sit in the sand, but only the back treble sitting out or if they've got the... The, um, the assist hooks. Yeah, the assist hooks sitting out, that sort of floating out, that as it's, it's trying to bury itself in the sand, they'll come and actually grab that out and that's where you get the hook up. So quite most people fishing bikes will quite often tell you that as soon as they go to lift that that, that fish is on. Yeah. Um, so the last one is what's your go-to scent for your plastics yeah. and lures? Do you have a favourite? It's funny, I ran S-Factor for a long time. I, I, I don't use scents a whole lot when I fish plastics I generally do but I don't throw scents on hard bodies too often yeah um, and I used S factor for a long time um, and then I made up ended up you know trying a heap of different ones so I ended up making a, a combination of about five different scents in one and um, then I ran uh, what is it bloody tuna for a little while oh yeah procure uh, which is the procure and um, literally I think just I bought a tube the other day of just standard S factor again. It's changed in its consistency and everything, but I think sometimes it helps, but I don't necessarily think that all the time it does. It, it it might come down to again, like I was saying earlier on in the show, it was more about giving you confidence. So if it gives you a little bit of confidence, you're gonna 
probably fish better. Yeah. And I think having a lure that you're confident with and, and finding new things, like like the, I'm not saying just stick with what you know, it's always worthwhile. Like you said, you know, you had a, a tough day one, go and try something new. Like I had a, a tough day one and a half and then I was like, okay, I'm going to try a new spot because I need to start to put more things in the memory bank of what I can use when things get tough. And I think having that knowledge certainly helps. Yeah, perfect. All right, mate, well... We'll close it off there. You've been generous of your time, so I don't want to uh, no problem you up for too long. Um, stick around for a sec. I'll end this chat and we'll have a quick chat. Yep. Good luck, everyone. Hope you uh, all absolutely smash it. I'll be very jealous. <laughs>